We're going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series here, and we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. As we looked at the Beatitudes last week, we started out this summer series, Sermon on the Mount, last Sunday, and we went through the Beatitudes. And as we discussed these inner Beatitudes, or these inner attitudes that we're to have now as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, the great thing is, is that being citizens of the kingdom is not something that we look forward to for a future day. This is not just our destiny. This is the reality for believers in Jesus for today, that we are presently citizens of the kingdom of God. So the Sermon on the Mount is really laying out for us this kingdom way. But these inner attitudes are not just something that are to be kept within, right? The Beatitudes lay out all these different attitudes we're to have, but they're not something that are just to be internal and reserved just for us. You ever see Christians that kind of live their Christian life that way, where they're just like, well, this is just my faith. This is just for me. This is just between me and God. So I just kind of keep that with, I don't want to, you know, force that on anybody else. You ever hear people talking like that? It'd be like somebody finding the cure for cancer and saying, oh, well, you know what? This is just something that I discovered. I don't want to impose that on anybody else. I think everybody should just have their own journey of discovery, right? Yeah, what do you think? You think that's crazy. That's ludicrous. You just found something that's going to be of utmost health to people, but we're not just talking about the cure for cancer. We're talking about something far greater. Life in Christ where we have the cure for sin and death. We have life in Jesus. And so Jesus begins to show this is something that should be propelling us now to be living in an outward way. Jesus lays out that these inner attitudes of the Beatitudes are to cause us as believers in Christ to be living differently in the world now around us. And so look at what Jesus says here. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now listen, I'm not going to be, I'm sure, sharing a, a whole lot of new things for you here today. These are familiar passages that we're, we're going to be dealing with today and, and upcoming. But I just pray and trust that that these are things that are going to be brought to remembrance again because it's so easy for us to kind of get out of line with, again, that kingdom way with these very things that Jesus is laying out for us. It's so easy to let other things in that sort of cause us to lose focus. And I pray that we're just coming back into focus with these things of the Lord and with this kingdom way mentality, how we're to be conducting ourselves as citizens of the kingdom. So Jesus says, first and foremost, You are the salt of the earth. Now, somebody could read that and think, I mean, what is this all about? Is Jesus uh, Jesus giving us a positive instruction or is this a bit of an insult? Because this isn't terminology that we would be using a lot today, right? I mean, we all know the story of Lot's wife getting turned to a pillar of salt. That's not nothing positive, right? Uh, To say somebody is really salty, that's not paying them much of a compliment, right? So when we hear these things, we're thinking, what is Jesus getting at here? What is he implying? What are we dealing with here? Well, listen, in this day, salt was a very valuable commodity. It was even used as payment. Roman soldiers, some Roman soldiers would be, could be paid in salt, 
That's where we get the expression, that guy's not worth his salt, or he is worth his salt, because it had value attached to it. So salt in this day, and in our day, it can have a few different functions. First of all, salt is a preservative. All right. Now, in this day that Jesus is speaking here to his disciples and as crowds are gathering around the mountainside listening to Jesus instructing his disciples, in this day, salt was used in this way as a preservative because they didn't have the luxuries of refrigeration like we have today. You got some meat, you pop it in the fridge or the freezer, that thing's going to last you for, for a while, right? And, and yet in that day, they didn't have that. So what they do, they take salt and they would rub it on the meat. And it would cause that meat to be preserved. It would stop it from decaying or rotting. You see, that's what salt did. Secondly, salt adds flavor, right? How many people love to sprinkle a little salt on your food, right? How many of you like to sprinkle salt on your food before you even taste it? You have no idea if it's salt or not, but you're like, I'm going straight to the salt because I just like to have a little bit of salt on my food. Anybody there with me? All right. Okay, Jen, you're good. So we, we, we like this because we know salt adds flavor and it kind of brings out the flavor in that which we're eating salt has an effect but then not only does it add flavor salt also promotes thirst because how many of you know when you've eaten a bag of salt and vinegar chips right you're like oh man i need a drink here i'm a little bit i'm thirsty it's starting to create those those uh you know taste buds just to kind of just salivate you're you're desiring some water at that point so Need something to quench it. So I think Jesus now, he lays out for us that we're to be salt to the earth because salt was such a practical thing to illustrate for us what we are to be like as Christians. We're to be a preserving agent in the world because understand that we live in a fallen world. We live in an evil world where it is following the prince of this age, Satan. Ephesians 2 lays out how we once conducted ourselves walking according to the course of this world, which was going apart from God, away from God. People are, are, are not just living with you know, a, a denial of God, but they're living in just complete rebellion against God. They want to just kind of do anything they can that goes against God. But you see, God has us, the church, living in this world where we're to be like salt, where we're preserving the things of truth and goodness, the things of God. We're to be living according to his word where we're, we're holding back kind of the, the forces of evil that are looking to conduct themselves. And, and I mean, you can just see it kind of cranking up all the more where just that, that door that may have just been opened a little bit of, of evil has just like it's been flung wide open where now there's just this, this force of evil that's looking to just kind of overtake the world. And yet God has the church in the world where we're to be upholding the things of truth, the things of God. We do that by prayer. We do that by being a witness. We do that by standing up for the things that are, are true and godly and right. That's what we're to be as believers. But then as we're living this life now for the Lord, we're to be adding flavor in the world. You see, I think a lot of people look at Christianity, and sadly they see that on some Christians, that, that living a Christian life is just kind of 
you know, it's it's boring, it's dry, it's just ho-hum. There's just, you know, they're just kind of riding things out, waiting until they go to heaven. And there's just no real life to them right now. But that should not be the case. Why? Because we have Jesus living in us. We have the very one that said, I am the way, the truth, and life. And I've come to give you abundance of life. We, of all people, should be living the most fun, enjoyable, peaceful, exciting life. Because we know who the life is, and that's Jesus. We should be adding that kind of flavor to where we come alongside other people that are not believers, that are in the world, and suddenly we're adding flavor to them, where they're going, oh man, I thought my life was pretty good, pretty content, but suddenly you've begun to sprinkle a little bit of this life now on me, and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's suddenly flavoring things up a little bit. You're adding something to my life that I didn't even realize was missing. And what happens now, as you're living as salt in the earth, adding flavor, suddenly people begin to have a thirst. You begin to promote thirst where they're realizing, man, I, 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 I didn't realize that I was missing something in my life. Suddenly I've been around you as a believer and I'm realizing I've got a thirst for something more that my life is really actually not very, I'm not very content with what's been going on. I've been living very average. I didn't realize there was more to have. And it begins to incite a thirst in them where we get to point them to Jesus and point them to the living waters that Jesus desires to pour out to quench that thirst, to give them satisfaction that they are suddenly realizing they don't experience apart from Christ. So we're to be preserving this world, we're to be adding flavor, we're to be promoting thirst for people. That's what we're, we're called to do. I think Jesus, in giving this illustration, had just such a, a great um, picture or analogy to use that fits so clearly with how we're to be conducting ourselves as citizens of the heaven. There's a couple other, other things that salt does. Salt can be an irritant, all right? But it also can be a healing agent. Have you ever had a, a cut, say, on a foot or your leg, and you go walking into the ocean, salt water, Suddenly you're like, oh my God, it stings, doesn't it? You're like, did a jellyfish just kind of come upon me and sting me or what? Suddenly you're like, oh, I got, and sometimes you don't even realize you got a cut there until salt water begins to engage that and starts to realize, man, I got a wound, I didn't realize. But it's also that salt water that begins to create a, a more rapid healing component to that cut. Some people say, oh, you got, you got an injury, you got a cut there? Oh, just go into the ocean, just go... Put some salt water on that. You got a sore throat. What do you do? You gargle with salt water, right? And if you're not careful enough, you're going to be doing a whole lot more other damage and losing your lunch if you swallow some of that salt water, right? I've done that myself. Not good. But, um, but so we see the healing component to it. And so what we as, again, salt in the world, what we do is we, we go in the world and at times, guess what? It's going to be a bit of an irritant to the world. Oh, don't be doing things where you're purposefully irritating others. Don't be living obnoxiously where you're just an irritant. But what's going to happen is that as you live for Jesus, suddenly people are realizing the wounds that they have, the hurts that they have that can at first be an irritant. That's why when Jesus ends the Beatitudes, he ends with the persecution that the church is going to receive because as we live for Jesus, the world is either, one of two things, they're going to accept that and go, I need that, or they're going to go, I don't like that. I need to silence that because it's exposing the wound, the hurt that they have. But you see, it's through Jesus too then that they're going to be healed, that they can be forgiven, that they can have life in him, that that wound can be taken care of, that wound of sin can be forgiven and dealt with. 
So being salt in the earth is a great picture for us as believers. It's not something that we, again, think of today in the terms of salt, but when you begin to look at how salt was used in this day, man, it begins to be such a fitting picture. So he was very wise. Jesus very wise in, in this example of what Christians were to be like. But as Jesus said, salt could end up losing its flavor. And, and when that happens, it's not good for much but to be thrown down and, and trampled over by men. Now, John Stott said this. He said, now strictly speaking, salt can never lose its saltiness or saltness. Uh, I'm given to understand that sodium chloride is a very stable chemical compound which is resistant to nearly every attack. Nevertheless, it can become contaminated by mixture with impurities and then it becomes useless, even dangerous. Desalted salt is unfit even for manure such as the compost heap. So too... Understand that losing our salt, our saltiness, is not equivalent to losing our salvation. All right? We're not talking about that. But rather, it's equivalent to losing our effectiveness in the world as a witness for Jesus. You see, Jesus died for us. He redeemed us. Not just so that we can go about our way, live in our comfortable life. He died. He, he paid the price to buy us back to have life in him so we can go and be a witness as, as Peter would say in, in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 that we would go and proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Are we being a witness or is the world just kind of trampling down our testimony to where it just has no value any longer? You see, that happens when the church ceases to be the church. When the church Stop standing up for the truth of the word of God. And we've seen that happen too often among churches and even in Christians where they begin just to compromise in that area of the truth of God's word where there's no longer any distinction between them and the world. Many people are looking to go, well, we don't want to offend the world. We just kind of want to fit in with the world. So let's maybe take this out of the word of God. Let's not say that God meant this, but maybe that was just for that day. In this day, things are changing, different times. And so we can apply things differently. You know, the, many churches are doing this with the word of God. And they're doing so to kind of be more palpable or accepting by the world. And they're allowing other mixtures in compromise coming to where they're losing that saltiness and they're losing that effectiveness in the world the world isn't looking for a church to be just like them the world is looking for something different they need to realize that they're not there that there's something more and the church needs to be something different christians need to be living differently to show there's something greater and better there's more flavor to experience it's found in jesus that's how, how we're to be. Salt makes a difference and Christians are to make a difference. Don't let things in that is going to defile, compromise, or corrupt who we are to be for Jesus and, and, to, and to corrupt that witness that we're to have in the world. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And he goes on to say another great illustration or example. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let me just point out something, because Jesus 
repeats a couple times, verse 13 and in verse 14, when he says those two words, you are. And think about that. He speaks that in the emphatic where he says, you and nobody else. You as believers, this is the role that you're to have. You and nobody else are to be salt and you're to be light in the world. And when he says you are, I love that. Because Jesus isn't saying, listen, one day I, I believe that you can get there, that you will be. He doesn't say you will be. He says you are. Right now, this is the reality presently for you. The minute you put your faith in Jesus, suddenly you are salt in your light. Why? Because as you give your life to Jesus, Jesus is now residing in you through his Holy Spirit. You're a new creation. You're a part of the, the kingdom of God as a citizen of the kingdom. And so you are presently to be salt and light. This isn't something that you have to join some church or, or be a part of a mentorship program to achieve to that level. Jesus says, no, right now, as believers, you are salt and you are light. I love that. You are to be living this way. And, and that's important because Jesus isn't saying to do something. He's emphasizing how we are to be. Okay? Catch the difference there. Because too many times as Christians, we, we get so wrapped up in, here's what I gotta do. I gotta do this, I gotta do that. Jesus is more concerned with just who you are. How you, just simply how you live. Not what you do, but who you are. So he emphasizes how we are to be. When you live out those attitudes in the Beatitudes, you're gonna be affecting your surroundings. Like salt affects food and like light affects darkness. It's gonna become a natural byproduct in your life. Now, now to say that we are the light of the world was quite a statement because Jesus himself says in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And here he says, you are to be light in the world. That's pretty, that's pretty huge. And that brings a lot of responsibility for us. But you see, we just simply reflect the true light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And we simply reflect that light. And we, re- we reflect that light as we spend time abiding in Christ, as Jesus is, is residing in us through his spirit. We just simply reflect that light, that relationship we have with Jesus. And so Jesus, he calls us here to be like that city that's set on a hill, which cannot be hidden, right? A city that's sitting up on a hill, it's lit up. And oftentimes as people were traveling around that city, especially in the evening time, would become like just a great guide for them, that destination. And, and they'd have that marked in where they go, okay, I see where I need to be and go. I see the path I need to take now. And that city would really be that guide and it would just illuminate the surrounding around them. It, it can't be hidden, right? It's propped up to where everybody can see. Even if there's something sort of right in front of you, that city stands above it. Where to be like that city, we're not to have things that are, are, are blocking out of that city sitting on the other side of the hill. Not going to be of any help, right? We're to be like that city up on a hill where we're shining brightly for Jesus and where we are, are letting that light just expose the darkness but illuminate all the more who Jesus is and it be that, that source, that reference point to where Je- of where people need to be connected to Jesus, right? Being that city and that, and that light, you have a light. You don't put a basket over it, right? You light a candle and you don't just go and throw something over top of it. You're going to go out. You let that light shine, right? 
I think we should all just break into song right now. This little light of mine. I'm gonna, how many people remember singing that growing up in church? I, I grew up in church singing that song all the time. I had no idea what light I was supposed to be letting shine. And I had no idea what I was, hold, I was like, am I gonna grow a finger? Like ET is starting to glow here? Like what's this all about here? I'm like, what is this going on? So songs in church that make you go, hmm, right? But, so we remember these things and, and Jesus lays out, this is what we're to be. Or to be like this light in the world. And he says in verse 16, I love this. He says, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, here's the thing. We need to recognize this, that our being lights in the world is not for self-promotion, right? This isn't something we need to go, hey, look at what I've been able to do and accomplish, everybody. Look at what I'm doing here. This is wonderful. No, Jesus... Jesus had to contend with the religious leaders for doing that very thing, where the religious leaders, and we'll get to that in an upcoming sermon on the Sermon on the Mount here, but he had to call it the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders because they were, they were showing all their good works and they were purposefully doing it out in very public places so they could be seen by men and praised by men. They were doing it for self-promotion. They were wanting to kind of be patted on the back. Christians, however, need to conduct themselves in a way where what they are doing and the way that they are living is simply reflecting the goodness of God. To where people see what you're doing and they go, oh my goodness, that must be because of God. That's got to be the work of Jesus in your life. Our good works should cause people to give thanks to God for all that he's doing through us. Listen, good works aren't done because we're good people. Good works are done because we're transformed people. God has done the good work in saving us, redeeming us. He's given us life in his son. So the spotlight always needs to be put on him. He's the one, right, that's done it all. So when someone says, why are you so kind or why are you so helpful? Don't let that be cost to say, well, I guess it's just because I'm so good. I'm such a wonderful person, I guess. Let it be cause rather to say, it's because God has been so good to me. Plain and simple. That's the only reason I, I, I do what I do is because of the goodness and the grace of God in my life. So Jesus lays out this role that we're to have as believers and as citizens of the kingdom of God. We're to be salt and light in the world. We're to be living as a witness that's affecting those around us positively, that's causing people to come to know Jesus and to glorify God. But next Jesus moves on to talk about this relationship now of the law and righteousness, and more so our relationship as believers to it. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, understand here, Jesus wasn't coming onto the scene to institute a new system or or religion he wasn't claiming that this kingdom way was now meaning that the old testament was obsolete this is not what jesus is implying at all here and a lot of people like to try to claim that today they they challenge the inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture they they look at the old testament as well old and they go that that doesn't pertain to us today some people kind of go the extreme and they go oh i just i just live by the ten commandments that's kind of my, my faith. I said by the Ten Commandments. And you're kind of like, really? How's that working for you? Have you ever looked at those Ten Commandments? How, how many lies have you told? Well, I mean, uh, not many, but that's just a, 
a little thing, right? That's nothing big. Well, let's, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit here. But, but catch what Jesus is saying. Because he didn't come to dismiss or destroy or discredit the scriptures. He came to fulfill it. He upholds all these things. He says, these things are solid and true, but what I've done is I've come to actually fulfill all of those things. Because the Old Testament scriptures, and when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's, he's, he's meaning the, 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 all of the Old Testament scriptures here. He says, all of these scriptures are ultimately pointing to me. They're pointing to Jesus. It was all laying out this plan of God to redeem man from their sin, to save them, to, to purchase them back, to give them life. And it was spelled out right there in, in Genesis 3, right? I mean, right at the very beginning, this wasn't an afterthought of God. Right in the very beginning, in Genesis 3, when he's speaking to, to Satan and, and the curse, he says, this woman's seed is going to crush your head. Speaking of this one that was going to come from God's people, Jesus, the Messiah, who would defeat sin, Satan, and death. This plan of redemption that God had. The Old Testament is the unfolding of this plan. Bishop Ryle summed it up like this. He said, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. And that's a good way to look at it. In fact, Jesus says this word, the the scriptures here are so solid that not even the minutest part of it, not one jot or one tittle will pass away before all is fulfilled. Now a jot was the smallest Hebrew letter. It was the letter Yod. And a tittle was the smallest stroke in the Hebrew alphabet. It would be like differentiating between the O and the Q in our alphabet. And, and so in that parallel passage that Luke is of this account, Luke writes in, in Luke 16 verse 17, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Listen, there has never been nor ever will be any error or failing of God's word. This is something that is dependable, that we stand upon, that we don't have to change, that we don't have to alter or, or try to change with the times. This is something that is true and it stood the test of time and it will continue to stand the test of time. It's right here in the word of God. And Jesus says, I've not come to change any of that. I, I'm the, the fulfillment of that because it's all pointing to Jesus. And Jesus carried it all out perfectly. He says in verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's like I was implying with a person that's trying to live by the Ten Commandments. You know, they go, well, you know, little lie. I mean, that's just something small. I'm talking about, you know, not murdering that guy. I haven't done any of those things. But the Bible says if you break just even a, a part of it, Right? James says if you break one part of the law, it's as though you've broken it all. We can't do it. But we certainly use that as a guide. The law is good. Listen, the the law is not bad. Some Christians like to promote that we're no longer under the law today. And that might be true in how it pertains to salvation, but it's a bad argument to make for just general living. Because, you know, don't murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. I'm okay with those things. I'm okay with the law. The law is not bad. In fact, the law is good at converting the soul. It tells us in his word. But what I see is that I understand that the law cannot save me. Living by the law, living by the Ten Commandments cannot save me. Putting on more rules and regulations doesn't save me. The law 
simply, as Galatians spells out, the law was like a tutor that was to lead us to Christ, to where we have our ultimate salvation in. The law simply realized and showed us God's standard of righteousness and that we were unable to fulfill it. In fact, look at what Jesus says in verse 20. And we'll close with this verse. It says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I can just imagine, you know, Jesus having a bit of fun saying this most provocative statement. The crowds, I'm sure, were whispering under their breath like, how is this possible? Unless our righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders, because remember, everybody viewed the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, as like kind of that, that standard of righteousness. They were the super spiritual elite. And everybody's like, man, if I can just be a little bit more like them. Because they did everything outwardly for show. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that to where everybody's suddenly going, what? We got to do more? than these? We got to live more righteously than these Pharisees? How is that possible? It'd be like saying, Brent, you cannot go and play golf unless you can drive that ball as far as Tiger Woods. Or if you want to be a little bit more relevant today, Bryson DeChambeau. If, you ever hear, if you're a golf fan, you'll know who I'm talking about. He's a monster when it comes to driving. And, and, and so somebody were to say, you can't golf unless you can drive as far as Tiger Woods. I mean, I can get pretty close to Tiger Woods in that drive. Uh, no, I'm breaking the law now myself, but um, not even close. But I'd be like, how oh, is that possible? I can't do that. Yeah, that's the point. Now, now Jesus, taking it back to what Jesus says to them, he's saying, as, as people I'm sure are thinking, how is this possible? He's saying, that's exactly right. It's not possible in and of yourselves. Jesus is showing that the law is not meant to save you. Your righteousness in and of yourself, self-righteousness, does not gain you any better standing with God because all your righteousness is as filthy rags before God. You cannot stand based on your own righteousness, based on what you try to do to qualify yourself to be right with God. It doesn't stand. You can't do it. The, the law shows us God's standard of righteousness and our inability to attain to it or live up to it. Not even the religious leaders could do so. So Jesus says it needs to exceed that. It needs to go beyond that. It needs to go beyond yourself. And so the law was given simply to point us to Jesus to say, we need help. We need more. We need the only one that's sinless and has fulfilled that righteousness. Remember, Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, verse 3, talking about, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's that attitude where you're recognizing your spiritual poverty, where you realize, I'm not good enough myself. I'm in need. I need help. But that's where you get brought now to the righteousness of Christ. That's where we get led to Jesus to recognize that it's in him that we are saved and that we're made right. Our righteousness needs to go beyond that of ourselves, that of the religious leaders, not in in degree, but in kind, because it's a righteousness now that's of the heart and it's based on faith and trust in Jesus and in what he's done for us. So Jesus now, continuing on next week, he's going he's gonna to begin to go through some of their laws and show them the true meaning of the law, God's intent of the law, and he's going to show that it is more so a matter of the heart. So we'll pick it up in verse 21 next week. Worship team, would you come up?
And we're going to end our time here in a time of communion and just remembering this work that the Lord has done for us. And I love the verse in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, And God, He made Him, Jesus made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now that verse ends chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians there. But what's great is that just before that in the context... In verse 17, it talks about us becoming new creations. Old things passing, all things becoming new. And then it leads us in that place of, uh, of where God's called us to be ministers of reconciliation. Again, salt and light in the world. And we do so because we recognize that I've been, I've been saved. I've become a new creation. And it's all been accomplished through Jesus, the very one that knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So many times we default back to this idea that I can be right with God because of what I do. Jesus doesn't teach us that. The word doesn't teach us that. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. Your righteousness must always stem from and consist in simple faith in Jesus where you've abandoned your life and you said, there's nothing good in me. I give my life to Jesus because it's only in him that I find goodness and this righteousness that I get to now live out as salt and light in the world. And that's what we'll be celebrating and and taking part in in communion here, just remembering this work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. I'm going to have our team come and hand out the emblems of communion as we just worship the Lord here and um, when you take the cup, you'll have two cups stacked together. The first one you just pull out, it's your juice. The second one will have the bread in the bottom of that one. So just take one stack there, and you'll have both emblems. And hold on to those, and we'll partake of those together after the song. <laughs>